I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today on the show, you're going to hear about a residential building in Germany that is completely covered in and powered by... Solar panels? No. Algae. Whoa. Plot twist. Yeah, and they're actually in the stages of trying to build one here in Australia. I'll have to hear more to understand what that's all about. But first on the show... We're starting off the show today with a... Pop quiz! So antibiotics kill... Bacteria. Give me an example of a bacterial infection. Uh, tetanus, urinary tract infections, tuberculosis. Great. Top of the class. And how do we treat these? Antibiotics. Now explain antibiotic resistance. So antibiotics kill bacteria, which cause things like tetanus and whooping cough. However, if you overuse antibiotics or don't finish a whole packet of them, the weak bacteria gets killed off. But some of the bacteria remains, and this is usually the fittest bacteria. 30 seconds left. And if we apply Darwin's theory of evolution, the fittest bacteria are the ones that survive, thrive, and reproduce. So not only do you have bacteria that are super fit, they are also resistant to antibiotics. So when these bacteria have babies, the babies are also resistant. And time's up. Well done. You passed Antibiotics 101. Thank you. I think most of the population gets this on some level. You finish your five-day packet of antibiotics, even if you're feeling better by day three. But some people are still going to the doctors for antibiotics if they've got something like a common cold. Guilty there. (laughs) Which is a problem because... Resistance to antibiotics risks a health catastrophe that should be up there in concern with terrorism. This is a very serious threat. It's a war, and I fear some of the battles are being lost. In 2015, the World Health Organization warned that we're heading toward a post-antibiotic era when more people will die from common infections. Antibiotic resistance is also considered a threat as big as climate change. Why? I definitely agree that it's up there with climate change. For one reason, antibiotic resistance is a global problem, just like climate change. And it doesn't matter how good one country are at preserving their antibiotics and using them appropriately, if nobody else in the world does. This is Laura. It's Laura McCaughey, and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. And if that didn't scare you, this will. In the States, there's about 24,000 people a year die from just antibiotic-resistant infections. And somebody said to me, that's the equivalent of a large airline plane coming down, crashing down and killing everyone on board once a week for a year. Now, if that happened by the third or fourth plane crashing, you would have done something about it. There would be national outrage. However, with antibiotic resistance, it's because it's small groups of people in hospitals and community centres and it's not a catastrophic event like Ebola that people haven't really noticed. Okay, so it can't all be because people are using antibiotics to get rid of their cold. Yeah, it's actually because antibiotics are in a lot of the food we eat. Yes, so one of the big problems is the use of antibiotics in the farming industry. 
So antibiotics are used um, in the food for um, many farm animals, and this is for two reasons. One is it prevents the animals from getting sick because we have very intensive farming. So if you keep lots of animals together, then the chances are they will get sick. It's like having a lot of people on a bus in winter. You're likely to pick something up. Um, And the other reason is that if you use low doses of antibiotics in animal food, then it helps the animals grow larger. So you get more, you get fatter chickens or bigger cows. So then the farmers get more profit. Um, So that's called growth promotion. Um, And the use of antibiotics is growth promotion started in the 1950s and in the 1970s it was already people were starting to realize that this was having an effect on resistant infections in humans however it's still done worldwide europe or the eu um, banned the use of antibiotics for growth promotion in 2006 Um, however countries like um, america are still using this practice So antibiotics are being fed to pigs and cows to keep them healthy and make them meaty and delicious. So when I have my pork chops for dinner, am I ingesting antibiotics? No, because before animals are allowed to go to slaughter, there is a withholding period so that antibiotics cannot be administered to an animal within a safe withholding period so that all the antibiotics are leached from the animal before they're they're slaughtered. The problem isn't the animals being fed the antibiotics, it's what comes out the other end. Stephen Georgievic is a professor of infectious diseases at the I3 Institute at UTS. As he explains, manure is sprayed as a fertiliser over crops and it also ends up in waterways. And this is where the fit bacteria thrive. I know there's quite a lot of literature talking about how this happens in some of the countries overseas whereby the waste is definitely sprayed out onto pasture. And there, although there are, there, are, there are people looking at re- reducing um, heavy metal toxicities and other environmental pollutants from waste, um, I don't think enough has been done to eliminate uh, antibiotic residues from waste. And once antibiotics are in your fruit and veg, they are really hard to sterilise. Amazing. No more salad for me. But this research is still developing. Don't get too excited, Jake. Well, we don't know how bad the problem is. There hasn't been a, real, a great deal of studies done. Uh, there are studies starting to emerge where people are looking at contamination of root and vegetables by, with antibiotic-resistance bacteria, and we're still in the infancy of, of understanding the scale of that, of that problem, so I don't want to uh, scare people. But, yes, there is definitely a potential for that to occur. So now this becomes a question of how we change our food processes. Thankfully, Stephen and his team are encouraging farmers to feed animal things to keep them healthy that aren't antibiotics. Looks like you might still have to eat your leafy greens, Jake. Oh, joy. <laughs> so that, that includes things like developing vaccines, uh, particularly vaccines for uh, the veterinary and livestock industries and for aquaculture, and also alternatives such as probiotics or prebiotics that influence the gut um, flora. Uh, so that we can um, improve animal health by manipulating gut flora rather than uh, relying on the use of blunt instruments like antibiotics to um, control disease. You might have heard Stephen mention there that antibiotics are a blunt instrument. And what this means is that it kills off the bad bacteria, but it also takes the good bacteria with it. This is obviously not good for the health of humans or animals. Laura, who we heard from earlier, is working on a way to tackle this. They're called protein antibiotics, and they are a type of antibiotic that is selective in what bacteria it kills. 
the protein antibiotics that I work on are called narrow-spectrum antibiotics, and they only kill one specific type of bacteria. And this is important because it can keep your, um, your good bacteria alive whilst you're getting treated, and this will make you a healthier patient. And these protein antibiotics are they're very good for trying to avoid resistance. Resistance is inevitable in any antibiotic you develop. The bacteria will develop resistance to it. There's no two ways about it. However, the ways that the protein antibiotics enter into the bacteria is they use specific systems that the bacteria use to take nutrients up. So the bacteria can't get rid of these systems very easily without starving or becoming sick themselves. So they are very promising molecules. However, they are still in the very early stages of development. As Laura said, it's early stages. They are currently still testing the narrow-spectrum antibiotics on animals. Um, I've tested these antibiotics um, in animals um, and mice so far, and the results are very promising. They're very, very effective at low, very low concentrations, and they don't um, appear to cause any damage to the the host or the, the animal tissue. dismissed. Make sure you do your homework. We'll be testing you on this next week. Only joking. (laughs) You're listening to Things Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. Now, we were just looking at a number of different solutions when it comes to tackling antibiotic resistance, but there's another substance which might prove very helpful in this situation, and maybe you even have it in your kitchen. It's honey! Well, not just any honey, but a particular type of honey called manuka honey, which is found here in Australia and New Zealand. A group of researchers from the I3 Institute at UTS are in the middle of a study that's looking at how the antibacterial properties of manuka honey could help when it comes to fighting wound infections. So to explain this in more detail, here's Dr Shona Blair from the I3 Institute at UTS. Okay, manuka honey is a honey that's found in New Zealand. That was where it was first discovered as a very special kind of honey that has really high levels of antimicrobial activity. That is the ability to kill germs. There are also honeys in Australia from the same plant family. The scientific name is Leptospermum, but we have lots and lots of those types of plants over here in Australia as well. And we're currently doing a research project looking at the antimicrobial activity of these honeys and also finding huge levels of antimicrobial activity. It's really effective against things like superbugs, these antimicrobial resistant germs that we have particularly in hospitals, nursing homes and even in the community setting now. So what do these antimicrobial properties signify? Why are they important? It's really exciting and very interesting because this compound, this special compound that we now know is in manuka honey that's come directly from the flower. As the bees go to the flower, they collect the nectar, take it back to the hive and ripen it into honey. Many honeys have some degree of antimicrobial activity because of the natural process of making honey and the bees adding a variety of enzymes. But manuka type honeys from Australia and from New Zealand have a special compound that's come directly across from the flower And this has really high levels of activity. When you take out all the other things that are in normal honeys, they're still really, really powerful at killing germs. And that's what we found in hospitals and nursing homes for things like really bad non-healing ulcers on legs and things for diabetic patients or elderly patients. Manuka honey seems to be able to kickstart the healing process 
it clears up the infection and actually stimulates the healing as well. This isn't really the first instance of honey being used for its antibacterial properties. This kind of dates way back, doesn't it? That's right. There's a really, really long history of humans using honey as a medicine, not just as a sweet treat. In fact, pretty much every culture that we've got some sort of records, be they through cave art or papyrus scrolls or or rock carvings, those types of things, show instances of humans using honey as a sacred or magic or medicinal substance. The Egyptians were great examples of people. They were phenomenally good beekeepers. Before them, we think that most people hunted honey. So they saw a hive up in a tree or under a cliff overhang and just kind of robbed the honey. In the process of doing that, you tend to kill the hive, you kill the queen, and then the hive disperses. But the Egyptians were really clever and they actually built hives much more like the ones we sort of think of today, though in a log shape rather than a box shape. But nonetheless, the principle was very similar. And they were able to rob the honey from the hive but not destroy the nest and the brood comb where the queen was and, and the baby bees. So they could use these hives again and again and they would actually put their hives on barges and move them up and down the Nile and so they would chase nectar flows which is exactly what Australian commercial beekeepers do today. They put their hives on trucks and drive them for hundreds of kilometres and put them into a forest with a good nectar flow on. And the Egyptians, we have records of something like 900 of their prescriptions and more than 500 of these contained honey. And persistently and consistently for a long time throughout Egyptian history and then following on to other cultures, honey was used as a wound dressing. And it makes a lot of sense now when we think about it, we know a lot more about it, that the very high levels of antimicrobial activity, that is this ability to kill germs, and we know that if you get a wound, a burn, a scratch, and also anything like that, and germs get into it, then you get an infection. At best, it takes longer to heal and you get a worse scar and it's not a very pleasant process, but at worst, it will kill you. Infections definitely kill people. And until we invented modern antibiotics, a simple scratch in the garden or having a tooth out could be a death sentence because of these infection issues. So many different cultures would specifically prescribe a type of honey for a type of ailment. This honey from this region in this season was good for ulcers, whereas this honey in that region at that season was good for burns. And what they knew without knowing it in our modern language is that some honeys have high levels of antibacterial activity, so killing the germs. Others have high levels of anti-inflammatory action, which is great for burns, to settle those down. So it's, it's really interesting that we're just rediscovering and being able to define scientifically some of this ancient knowledge around honey and wound healing. And you mentioned wound dressings. So in a medical practice Traditionally, how were they then applying that? Were they just putting it on the skin or were they wrapping it up with something that was kind of soaked in honey? Yeah, I mean, honey's great, but it is a very sticky substance. It's not yeah. terribly practical. Um, <laughs> I use it myself. It's my first, you know, first port of call for first aid. But it is sticky and it does tend to get everywhere. Um, the Egyptians, again, were very clever. They would they made a mixture of about one-third honey, one-third lint, so sort of like a cotton fluff, and one-third animal fat. And it made sort of an ointmenty, pasty thing that then was very good at staying on the wound and staying in place. Today we have wound dressings made from honey, which are just honey in a, in a gel-type base, so they stay on the wound, or else you can even get special uh, medicinal honey in a tube. You put it onto the wound, and then you put some sort of appropriate dressing on top that just keeps the honey in place and stops it running off all over the place. It doesn't tend to stay well on the skin. So the honey's on the wound. What is it doing while it's on there? Because honey, you know, we all know it's very sweet, and it's actually quite high in sugar. It's around 85% sugar, depending on the, the source. Those sugar molecules in there make honey 
what is technically um, in a sort of a scientific uh, sense referred to as a very dry substance. So sugar molecules will then suck water or, or fluids from your tissue and then honey by itself in a jar isn't really doing very much. But as soon as you start adding that little bit of moisture from the tissue, that kicks in with the enzymes that are in there that have been added by the bees and starts producing different products that are very good at stimulating the healing process and also killing some of the germs that are there. And with the research that you're doing with Manuka honey and taking into consideration how it's been used traditionally in the past, what are you finding now as effective ways in terms of wound treatment or even using it as or using it for its antimicrobial properties? I've been particularly interested, as has the the group here at UTS um, under Professor Liz Harry, been particularly interested in looking at how we can use honey, particularly Manuka-type honeys, to kill or inhibit these really nasty multiple drug-resistant bugs. They call them superbugs sometimes in hospital. Something like golden staph is an example. The reason we're so fearful of these organisms is that 50 years ago, we used to, if you got a scratch and you got an infection for this, no problems. I'll give you a little bit of penicillin or another type of antibiotic and you'll be fine. But now, because these bugs have been so constantly exposed to these types of drugs, they've developed resistance. And now a fairly simple scratch or simple operation or side effects after chemo, all those kinds of things can become very, very dangerous again because they're very, very hard to treat. Obviously, honey isn't something that you could use for a systemic infection or an infection sort of right into inside an internal organ or something like that. However, most infections start from the outside. So it's a great dressing to put on straight away after surgery, after any sort of trauma. And it stops these bugs, it kills these bugs, it kills these superbugs, these multi-drug resistant organisms, these antibiotic resistant microbes that we're frankly terrified of. There's about three years left before the end of this study. What are you looking forward to or what are you looking at for the next couple of years while this is going on? So what we're trying to do is find more sources of Australian active honey. Uh, We know that there are many more species of leptospermum over here than there are in New Zealand, and this is the one that gives this Manuka-type honey. So what we're trying to do is catch all the beekeeping seasons, and some plants don't flower every season, or there might have been an issue with bushfire or, or floods or drought, that type of thing. So we're running quite a long study to try and get as many species of this leptospermum honey from all over the country as possible. We're then testing it for its antimicrobial activity, how well it kills golden staff. We look at its chemistry to see how much of this compound it's, it's brought across from the flower. And we're trying to work out more things. We're trying to use this as a clue to, for other ways that we can attack these multi-resistant bugs. Honey's great as a topical treatment, but it's not going to solve all the problems that are associated with drug-resistant microbes. So we're using this almost as a model because we've tried to in the lab, make these microbes resistant to honey, and we can't. We can make them resistant to antibiotics. That works well. But we can't make them resistant to honey, which is a very interesting thing. It's great. So we're trying to learn more from the honey about other ways to deal with these really nasty microbes. Dr Shona Blair from the I3 Institute at UTS. Ellen, when you hear algae, what do you think of? That gross stuff that's in lakes? Think again, that gross stuff could in fact power your next house and maybe someday power an entire city. And it's happening already in Germany, where one apartment building is completely covered in and powered by algae. So is Sydney next? There's 35, 37, 38,000 kinds of algae known at the moment, and that count grows all the time. 
So algae can be selected to do almost anything with it. That's Paul Stoller. He's a senior lecturer at the School of Architecture at UTS, and one of the researchers involved in the feasibility project for an algae building in Sydney. There's many different kinds of algae that are regularly eaten around the world. Especially some of the large form algae are we think of them as seaweed, not kind of pond scum, but seaweed, and are part of you know everyday diet in Japan, and I'd say part of an everyday diet in Sydney now. There's other kinds of algae that can be readily Transformed into, I should say, industrial products and health products. Almost any time you drink a green energy drink now, very popular, they have algae in them. There's a whole nutritional realm of algae-based products,、um, food supplements, health and beauty products, and that's a multi-billion-dollar industry, and it's growing rapidly.、Uh, algae are also the a critical source input to many kinds of pharmaceuticals. The other often talked about one is the energy benefit of algae. You take the algae and either Dry it out and burn it, and use the heat in a building. Or you can convert it into methane through a bioreaction process, and then burn the methane, slightly cleaner, and generate energy out of it. Also, you can extract the solar heat that warms up the algae and keeps it happy and growing happily in the bioreactors. So, it, in some ways, the algae panels are like advanced solar thermal panels or solar hot water panels on your house. Plus, you get food and additional energy out of them. Hamburg in Germany is currently home to the world's only living algae building, and in fact. It's an apartment building with people living inside, and aside from generating its own energy, the residents can eat the algae that grows there. But hungry stomachs aside, what does the building actually look like? It looks very green. It's literally a green building because they chose an algae that is green. So it has panels on the building.、Um, the panels move actually to track the sun, and there's a greenish water that bubbles up through them. The, the algae is grown in a water suspension, so it's always flowing through. Interestingly enough, we learned the building also has a very distinct acoustic character. You hear this gentle bubbling sound in the background because the algae bubbles up in the panel, oxygenates,、uh, takes in carbon dioxide, and then flows on out. So these are the kinds of experiences that we are only beginning to understand that they exist, and also to learn whether they're pleasant and desirable, or unpleasant and noxious, or you know some mix depending upon the people in the building. Paul, alongside a group of researchers at UTS, attended a living algae building forum midway through last year to look at how an algae building might work here in Australia. But with only one example to take notes from, there are a lot of questions that need answers. There's very little data available about how living algae systems perform in a way that is meaningful to the property industry. We don't have convenient metrics for. Energy density, or for nutrient density, or for shading effectiveness, or for even color ranges. So, what we learned at the forum, what the property industry told us, is that before we can properly design living algae buildings, we need to understand how will they perform. And that is what、uh, UTS is organizing now: is a research effort into the technical components of living algae buildings, the bioreactor panels. So we can build some test panels and use them to answer questions about how do they perform, how do they, how much do they cost to make, how much do they cost to run,、uh, so that we can use that data to put together、uh, the information that we can then use to design living algae buildings. The algae building feasibility study will wrap up in May, so it might be some time before we see construction start for a fully fledged algae building here in Australia. But trialing some test panels. That might be sooner than you think. Hi, I'm Sarah Wilkinson. I'm associate professor of property and construction in the School of Built Environment at UTS. 
what we're hoping to do as stage two of this project is to develop a prototype algae panel. We're calling it the app project. So that's very exciting because, again, we're having input from uh, microalgae specialists, from engineers, from architects. We'll start to um, develop what we think is going to be the optimum panel for the Sydney climate and then we'll set up the panel. We're hoping to set it up on campus somewhere that's very visible so uh, students and the public can go, wow, what's that? Because they do look very funky. As they photosynthesise, you get bubbles appearing in the panels. It's a bit like a giant green lava lamp. And then we'd attach a lot of monitoring equipment to it, which would look at production levels and performance. We're pretty sure we can have something up and running maybe by the end of the year, and then we'll have it in place for at least a year and hopefully longer to get some longitudinal data on actual performance. And then we would be able to get information on how much energy is produced, whether there are different peaks and troughs in the day or months of the year and that sort of thing. And then from that, we'd be able to look at the energy needs of a building and work out how much we would have to provide in order to meet those energy needs or whether it's a part solution. You know, you can meet 50% of a building's energy requirements through this technology and then have another renewable technology. Renewable energy and finding other ways to power our homes and buildings is a hot topic at the moment and one constantly tied in with finances. And with a new and unfamiliar technology like an algae building, how much it would cost to make is a big question. With any innovation, your initial costs are going to be very, very high compared to later when it becomes an accepted technology and there's economies of scale through mass production. So, for example, we've only got one building in the world at the moment. The cost for that was something like $2,300 a metre squared. Now, a conventional facade in Australia at the moment is about $350 a meter squared. So it's a lot more expensive, but conventional facades don't necessarily provide energy. So it will be more expensive to begin with, but technology changes and shifts and it doesn't always change in a linear fashion. You know, there are leaps and bounds. So you get these technology shifts. The pace is changing, it is getting quicker, and the more people that come into this field and try things out, the quicker those technology shifts will occur. Sarah Wilkinson, Associate Professor of Property and Construction in the School of Built Environment at UTS. With any new technology, there are always questions. Some questioning whether the technology will be effective, whether it's cost-efficient, or even questioning whether it's safe. For something like algae, integrating it into a residential building might raise a few eyebrows, particularly when, in certain cases, we're told to avoid algae entirely. This is something Paul Stoller from earlier says needs to be carefully thought out. That is exactly what I said when I convened, when I opened up the forum, as I've spent my childhood avoiding algae because it made me sick when I came across it in the lake. And now I spend most of my professional career, uh, a big part of it, helping design facades that purposely avoid things growing on them (laughs) or having water flow through them. So this is a very different kind of facade system, a very different kind of experience. Uh, And that's part of what makes it technically interesting and exciting is to grapple with new things. 
but also it has the potential to give us you know, new kinds of outputs that we don't normally get out of buildings. It's a more complicated system and a more complicated approach to buildings, but we get more out of the uh, real estate kind of area. And in cities, which are facing all sorts of challenges, to do more with the same territory, that's, a, that's an important driver that we think may make the living algae buildings viable in a way now that they weren't even five or ten years ago. Paul Stoller, Senior Lecturer in the School of Architecture at UTS. Listening to the show, Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head to our website 2SER.com forward slash think sustainability. And you can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Ellen Lee Beta. I'm Jake Morkham. See you next week.